Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Magnus and Marcus podcast. Joined, as always, by John. How you doing, John? Oh, I'm great. We're back, baby. Good to be back, man. Mm -hmm. And uh, back with another exciting topic. This one, I think, will be interesting um, because it's something that everybody has to deal with, but I don't think a lot of people really talk about it. And uh, that topic I'm talking about is dealing with failure. Yeah, that's right. It's kind of the the taboo in our sport, so to speak. You know, the taboo in running or track and field world. We have we live in this weird uh, hodgepodge of you know trying to get better from race to race to see market improvement throughout a season in and of itself. So looking for either like a PR or a season's best or some kind of a positive progression, and then as well as from season to season. And you know, it's kind of it's kind of a heavy task because if you think about your life in general, you know, was the previous year or was the current is the current year previous or compared to the previous year a lot better? And does that just uh, create a linear trend where every single year your life as a whole is getting better? And you know, that's something we want to talk about to put it in perspective, especially as we come to the end of tra- outdoor track season and the end at the tail end of a lot of hard work, effort, and energy put in by athletes and coaches um, as we springboard to the summer months. Yeah, no, I think that I think it's a fascinating topic, and it's one that's particularly interesting for me because, uh, well, if you look back at my running career, I had a lot of failure. <laughs> um, <laughs> I like to say I failed spectacularly um, after putting a lot of effort into it, and I think framing that correctly made me um the coach i am so you know uh when you when you look at dealing with failure i think number one is is is, um how do you define failure in our sport a a lot of times people define it strictly by their prs and if you look at how many times you actually run your best or run your best pr it it's not that often, right? I mean, especially as you you progress as an athlete, they come fewer and far between. It's hard to be on that point in a perfect race all the time. And I know coaching at the high school and college level is sometimes you'll get athletes who just ran a, a pretty great, you know, tactical race for themselves and maybe competed well or set themselves up well for um, for running quickly, but maybe because of the, the race conditions or the how the race played out, you know, they, they didn't get a PR and they'll come off the track and they'll be disappointed. And you're sitting here thinking like, no, like you ran, you ran a great race, but because they're framing it based on this kind of, uh, you know, the, the numbers are what matter, uh, approach it's seen as a failure. And I think that's one of the things step one with all your athletes is you have to define as, is what kind of is a success and what's a, not even define what a failure is because but what what's a success what's kind of a secondary success and so forth yeah exactly and, it, and it's tough especially with scholastic athletes uh, i think because that's that's how they get hooked you like we talked about in our first podcast with the clean saint uh, syndrome is they get hooked because they're getting remarkably better every single week or remarkably better as they're maturing now there's a big difference between a 14-year-old freshman and a 15-year-old sophomore, they're just a lot more mature, and they're going to get a lot 
faster and more athletic because of that normal maturation process, regardless of you know the stimulus you're putting on them as a coach with doing any kind of workout, exercises, drills, etc. What happens when you start dealing with a you know 18, 19, 20-year-old male or female who's kind of at the who's early mature at the tail end of kind of their hormonal uh, 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 like puberty lifespan and who's who's kind of getting everything set and sewn there and they you know and then it doesn't come as easy they don't get the huge PRs or all the tail end too you have this huge stud who runs really really fast as a freshman and that's always you know the scariest thing someone runs wicked fast as a freshman. And then they don't get a whole lot better their sophomore, junior, or senior year because they ran such an outlier mark as a freshman. I think, you know, we can. Someone asked me this Friday. I was down in Eugene for the Oregon Twilight. Watched Matthew Maton break four minutes in the mile. Very windy conditions on a very gutsy race. Big last lap. And I was like, wow, you know, that's super impressive. That's super exciting. I mean, you don't often see a high school kid in the United States break four minutes for the mile. And someone asked me, oh, you think, you know. He's going to do 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 do, or, he, or what do you think his trajectory is going to be? I go. It really depends. It depends about how he sets himself up from, a, you know, a community and integration standpoint with his support network, coaching facilities. You know how how he learns tactics in racing. Just because you ran this, he ran this like sub four minute mile doesn't automatically mean every race he runs for the rest of his life is going to be this probable performance. How is he going to deal with? those races where senior year of college he runs a 402 mile and he's like man i ran fast in this as a high school senior four years ago five years ago whatever so that's you know again like i said earlier it's a taboo not to talk about because we just become you know pr progression addicts so to speak and it's like no you you gotta understand there's a big difference between being a time trialist and being a champion now i told steve earlier as we are discussing this topic, that champions can time trial. They can do that. But very, very rarely can a time trialist become a champion because it's a different skill set. And, you know, in the reality in our sport is a lot of the regular season, if you like, let's frame it like basketball, the regular season is just about getting to the playoffs in basketball. It's just about saying, hey, we're one of the better, you know, 8, 16 teams in the NBA, and we just are winning enough games to get us to the playoffs. Same thing in track. Essentially, at the end of the day, the regular season, all these invitationals are about getting you the qualifying mark to get you to the championship meet, whether that's your districts, sectionals, um, conference, regionals, nationals, whatever. That's really what those meets are about at the end of the day. And it's great if you run super fast. It's great if you jump super far. It's awesome if you throw you know, out of the ring. That's exciting. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have all the tools to be a good championship racer, uh, depending on when, where your championship is, you know, what the conditions are, weather outdoors, what the playing field's like, how are you going to go in and approach that from a tactical standpoint to maybe run 15 seconds slower in the 15, like they do every year at the USATF, you know, outdoor national championships in the men's field. But then, you know, put yourself in a position to be one of those first people that crosses the tape. And that's something I think any well-designed training program and any well-designed athlete coast relationship takes into consideration and is able to, you know, uh, call upon after that frustrating type race. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think that's a, 
a great uh, segue is is looking at some high school phenoms or high school studs. And what, what often happens and where you get problems transitioning is that when you're that good in high school, normally you win everything pretty easily, right? So mm -hmm. you just get used to time trialing and you get used to doing whatever you want and you're never putting in that kind of uncomfortable position of not being certain on the race and not... Um, not being just so much better that you have to actually tactically execute a race. And I think what, what happens a lot of times is they transition into college and now they're not the kid out there leading. They're not the kid who has superior fitness so they can do whatever they want. Now they're stuck in a pack with, you know, 10 other guys who, who have the same skill set. And a lot of times it's that that uh that ability to stay comfort or comfortable in that position i mean i know um in coaching and then also speaking from experience when i transitioned in, into college in high school i was just a straight front runner who just went out and ran you know ran 60 second quarters until i couldn't right um mm -hmm. and then tried to do the same thing in college because i was like well i'm a front runner i'm gonna do the same thing well the difference is like i could get to three quarters or you know 1400 meters but in high school i'd be able to lit off a little bit and still hang on you know in college it was i'd get to 1200 meters and there'd be 10 other guys sitting on me about to blow by me right and i was i never got that like until later got that comfort of having competitors there and racing with other people um because it wasn't it wasn't something i trained for in high school um, and then didn't do a good job of adapting to it in college. So I think, you know, I've noticed this myself in coaching some, some phenoms out of high school is sometimes, and this is why I think the NCAA system is, is actually good, is that learning how to race and sometimes yes. even failing at races and understanding why you did is, is an incredibly valuable lesson. And that's why sometimes I think that sometimes just skipping straight from high school to, to professional is you lose out on that tactical awareness and that comfort in, um, in um, progressing and in, in racing people who are at similar ability levels. Right. I mean, you know, shout out here to Elise Cranny, Stanford, Chris Miltenberg, one of my college coaches. I mean, smartest thing she did was go to college. I mean, she's, she's good. She was one of the better high school middle distance runners here. It was never a question she was going to go to college. Now, you know, there's other other phenoms out there on the women's side, Mary Kane, Lex Jefferson, who have jumped straight to the pros, and, you know, it's a whole different ball game, and they miss a really critical progressional step about how to deal with the ups and downs of racing, of training, and competing against other people that are just as good as you, that are training with you in mind, to kick your butt because guess what? If you finish in front of them, that's the difference of a big paycheck. And, you know, it's it's a lot harsher reality for a young high school, you know, or young adult to, to face versus if you're, you get the chance to compete at, you know, a conference meet, a pen relays, a Peyton Jordan, you know, in those teats, you can fail. And, I mean, you saw that and you've seen that. With Elise Crane, you know, she's not every single race she ran has been, oh, my God, she's just crushing the NSA. She's ran some really amazing races and she's had some, you know, not so great races. But from a long term developmental standpoint, that's 
a real critical step in, you know, the old lost art of craftsmanship from, and the journey from apprentice to journeyman to master, the journeyman um, step was a crucial middle step to being deemed a master. So you spent, right, like seven years or so with, as an apprentice, learning under the watchful eyes, learning the skills, learning the trades, having that master help develop the skills in you. Then you had to go on your own and kind of, you know, basically make it for a couple years before you were put into a position where you could, um, you know, apply to be a master. Remember, a journeyman can't have any uh, apprentices themselves. So they had to learn the task and apply the skills that their master taught them and just get some real, real life feedback. And then you could create a piece of work or, you know, a, pe- or your, a piece of your trade and apply it to the guild of your area and the guild can then accept it or deny it you know, and give you that masterhood. I mean, it's a it's a lost start that we've kind of traded in for this very generic education in the modern university system. Um, and that, you know, the, some of these phenoms who are jumping straight to pros are losing as well by not getting that journeyman or that time in college to really kind of play with the ups and downs. Because you got to win now. Like professional level track, as Steve and I know, it's about winning right now. It's, it's, a, business, it's a business of winning. And if you're not winning... You, people forget who you are and that's that's really tough versus if you can be at a conference level championship and you know run at a windy wichita state you know in the 1500 and figure out how do i deal with these tactics in the wind uh you know that might serve you later on in the olympic trials if it's like real windy at hayward and eugene which it can be especially on down that back straightaway these subtle things people don't know that you don't get exposure to um until all the stakes are on the line it's kind of a heavy, heavy burden of price for making that very "quote unquote" glamorous jump to the professional ranks. Because again, I would remind people, even too, when if they're thinking about, you know, leaving the sport or, or leaving college early, or you know, if they're thinking about a fourth year or a fifth year, you know, uh, as a student athlete, and you know what that looks like. And I would try to remind them, like, look, you don't get this time back. You can't go back to school and compete. You know, if you're like, yeah, it's been kind of. You know, a couple of years here out of school, I want to go back and compete at the collegiate level. No, you can't do that. So it's a very precious time. Don't throw it away because you can never get it back. And I'm always a big fan of, you know, having adventures and experiences that are essentially, you know, non-refundable and that you can't go back in time and replicate no matter what because it's just a different threshold. Uh, in life that you'll be at. And that's just the rules of the game of our sport. So, yes, I mean, there's a lot of things wrong with the NCA system, but this is actually one of the good teaching things that I really think is right with the uh, American Scholastics uh, system for competitive racing and honing, so to speak, your skill set. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I almost look at it as it's like a four-year buffer to uh, to learn things that <laughs> that you need to learn with where you're not penalized for it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because if the bottom line is if you're NCAA champion by the end of your four years, but your freshman year you you know uh, you ran at you know Austin when it's 85 degrees out and crazy humidity and you make a tactical mistake um, and you pay for it, and don't qualify for nationals. No one's gonna remember that four years mm-hmm. down the line, right? right? But if you do that at you know the Olympic trials or world 
you know, U.S. Uh, championships for world qualifying. That's the difference between maybe a contract extension, uh, a kick up in your salary by, you know, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000. It's a huge deal. And um, that's where I think this, this kind of journeyman, this learning process is huge. Um, when I think of, and that's where I think failing comes in. And, you know, mm-hmm. one of, I, I forgot where I was reading at, um, some book, but I've been reading too much lately. But uh, that, that ties into this a little bit is there's this whole uh, cognitive psych concept where when they work on people with um, with phobias, like if you, you know you have a fear of height or or a, you know a fear of spiders or something like that, it's one of the ways they found to actually eliminate or get rid of that is put them in that situation in a mm-hmm. somewhat controlled environment. But put them at, in that situation, get that nervousness and arousal, and then by uh, almost like replacing that memory, giving them like assurance that they're okay, reassuring them, teaching them how to um, deal with it immediately afterwards, you can get rid of that phobia. And their their principle was that like by putting yourself in a point of weakness, you open up like this 30-minute hour window of when you can work on changing your reaction to that weakness. And I think that even though it's a completely different field and topic, I think I we've almost applied that to coaching in the sense that after a race, if um, you know, if it goes badly, you have this window, of course it you know, it's not an hour window, but you have this time frame where you can look back at it, see what you did wrong right, see what you did wrong. And that's going to frame how you respond to that. You can either let the athlete kind of stew and dwell over it and think they're, they're, a, they're a failure and carry that on to the next meet. And they'll think like, oh, last time I failed and I messed up, is this going to happen again? Or you change it, frame it correctly and say, all right, these are the things that went well. These are the things that, you know, maybe I need to work on and this is how I'm going to fix this then you've created a positive framework out of it and hopefully adapted in the right direction to the failure. Exactly. I have a rule that my wife and I follow just for some marital advice out there. We touch on everything on this podcast. So I'm going to give a happily married here for almost three years. We never go to bed mad at each other. That was something my grandma told me. She said, hey, no matter what, never go to bed mad at each other. And you know, we've we've had our arguments, we've had our disagreements, we've had our difference in perspectives, but we've made that. Uh, you know, even if it's like two, three more, three in the morning. You know, <laughs> real real late. We never go to bed mad at each other. And the same thing applies that I apply to uh, athletes I work with is after a what they deem a less than desirable race, don't go to bed mad at yourself. I give people a night, and you know, to go hit the pillow before I talk to them because it's just. You know, you, you see that all the time. You, someone has a bad race, coach comes up to them, immediately calls them. They're so emotional, so dramatic. It's like, hey, let's put this in perspective. You know, you're going to go home, you're going to go to a bed, you're going to have dinner, you're going to have a you know, warm shower, you're going to have a lot of amenities here. Just because you didn't run well by you know, your perception today, it's not the end of the world. But it, you can't really get a whole lot out of, or you can't really get an impact in a teaching moment by talking to someone who's super emotional and trying to talk them off the ledge. But I just tell them, look, whatever you do, don't go to sleep tonight. Mad at yourself, you know. Find that uh, positive. Find something that you can take away from this, and then let's talk tomorrow morning about 
why you're upset about this race. You know, I'll tell you my impressions and uh, insights, and you can tell me your thoughts and feelings, but just don't go a bit mad at yourself. And if you follow that rule, nine times out of ten, you can, la- you can bounce back and you can be resilient, right? Because what are we trying to do at a lot of conference meets? Well, it's a two-day meet, typically. So you got prelims, you got finals, you got athletes who are doubling, who are tripling. You know, let's say your goal is to run the 815 double. You have a prelim in the 8 the night before, the, the morning of, and then the next day you have a final in the 15, final the 8. Well, if you don't make it out of that prelim in the 8, and then you go to bed pissed off at yourself, worrying or whatever, you're not going to be ready to perform that next day in that 15 meter final. So, you know, you got to be able to compartmentalize a little bit. Um, but, you know, Steve's right on the fear of failure thing. You know, I'm reading the book right now, The Art of Work by Jeffrey. Uh, Goins, and it's it's a fantastic book um, in a lot of respects, and in that he talks exactly about this, about how fear fear is just the you know um, hesitance to take a step. It's the fear not to take action, and you, that's exactly what a race is. Is like you have to take a risk, you have to take actions some point in the race to take control of the race. Otherwise, you're just a passive participant in a race rather than an active participant. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we have a team rule that you can never you can never be mad at a race if you put yourself out there, executed your race plan, and took a risk to do something that you haven't done before. If it doesn't work out, we can figure out why it didn't work out. But if you put yourself in position to, that is the key. So we stress that all the time, which is the same same idea, right? Um, right. And I always tell people, like, look, if you if you execute and you take a risk and you don't get it done, it's the coach's fault. Exactly. I didn't do something right with your training. I didn't, you know, endow you with the ability to do this. I thought you could. And, you know, I we are usually pretty realistic, you know, slightly delusionally optimistic, <laughs> but mostly realistic about your abilities. But it, blame us. Blame the coach. Like, you get off 100% scot-free. And... But if you don't, if you don't take that risk, if you don't put yourself out there, if you just run with hesitation or fear in your heart and you just walk away with me, man, coach, I just didn't do anything. Well, then that's on you. That's a hundred percent, you know, on you. So do me a favor as the coach and execute the game plan, you know, that we come to agree on a hundred percent, go all in. And because if you, you know, tie up with 50 meters to go on the home stretch, or if you just completely go to like, you know, uh, straight acidosis lock up with 300 meters to go on the back stretch then now i know something that we have to do to help you get better in training moving forward but if you just start running hesitant running hesitant running hesitant and you don't you know execute it all out of fear or out of worry or, or what have you then the, i really don't know how to help guide the training moving forward for that athlete so you, you know it's kind of like uh and I tell the athlete, no matter what, you win. Like, you don't get blamed. It's like either you do well and it's all on you and you own it, or you do bad and you just blame coach. <laughs> so, it, it, yeah, it's funny. I actually posted up a blog post about that Friday, I think, um, <laughs> where it, it's so true. Is we have a role on our team. It's like if you do, if you do what I, what uh, we agree to and what I ask and all that, and you, you fail, you mess up, then it's on me. It's on me to figure it out. So uh, it takes the pressure off them, but it's also it's also true, and I think that's mm-hmm. a you know uh, maybe segueing a lot. That's that's a very powerful approach to take as a coach, and something to keep in mind, especially um, after athletes do do poorly. Is you know n- not naming names, but I've seen coaches 
go crazy and get all all emotional and you know scream at their kids <laughs> after after a bad race and you know blaming them for effort and saying why didn't you do this and that and you know part of me gets it because you're you're emotionally invested and I understand the emotion is there but it it's it's taking them down a completely wrong road and I right. think from from a coach's standpoint understanding that and separating it out and not letting your kind of emotional response and and care um get to you is is huge because the last thing you want is as a coach you're supposed to be the one who can step back be objective and uh, and diagnose things you don't if you come up to an athlete who ran poorly who's probably going to have some sort of strong emotional response you don't want to go in there with emotions blazing because all it's going to do is create this a horrible, you know, almost like argument, right? So I think that's where, um, you know, you mentioned before, like taking a step back saying, hey, we'll talk about it tomorrow. Or a lot of times what we do is if an athlete kind of comes up to me, you know, and is angry and upset and all that, we'll be like, look, go cool down with your teammates. Like, you know, let it chill off and, and you know, we'll talk in an hour. You know, once you've right. gone through your whole cool down routine and got something to eat and a lot of times they'll come back after that and now they're thinking a little more level headed and, and can kind of step back and see things objectively. So from a from a coaching standpoint, I think that's one of the biggest lessons you have to take is is you know what you're invested in your athletes. That's good. But don't get so emotionally invested that you tie your ego to their performance. So that if they fail, you see it as an attack on your ego, which I think happens a lot where coaches who kind of go crazy and uh, and <laughs> yell at their kids a little bit. Right. And that, you know, that's sad to see because it's like the reality is if we take you through here, I'm going to take you through three quick questions, you know, name the conference champion in the 1500 from five years ago in your conference, name the you know, NCAA Division II 5,000-meter champion from six years ago for men. Name, you know, the, uh, you know, Olympic trials champion in the win steeplechase from 1988. Likelihood is you couldn't just come to that automatically. Now, if I asked you, like, these three questions, you know, uh, name three friends who have really helped you out in a difficult time in your life. You know, think of the people you really get a lot out of spending time with. You know, name a coach or a teacher who really took you under their wing and helped make you who you are today. Those you have the answer right on your lips immediately. So it's, again, it's a process-oriented approach versus a result-oriented approach. You know, yes, you're competitive. Yes, we want to do well. Yes, we want to compete for the win. Yes, that's why we all show up to run these races and these championships. You know, we prepare so diligently. And, you know, as an athlete, you go to bed early. You, you know, take care of your body. You do all these things that normal people don't do, quote-unquote, in our society, right? Or normal college or scholastic kids don't do. Like, you're not going out to a keger the night before a big race, you know? regardless of it's Friday night or whatever. But we, you know, and agree with Steve here, we can't lose sight of what really this is. It's the people business. It's the business of, hey, someone's trying to help nurture you and develop your skills that you're already endowed with to the fullest of their ability. But at the end of the day, it's more about getting that call 10 years down the road and saying, hey, coach, just had my first kid. Or, hey, coach, getting married, we'll let you know, come to the wedding. You know, that's that's the bigger... <laughs> Um, 
joy of this profession and joy of relate of the relationship you develop with these athletes is the long term interaction, not just yeah, I coach them. I just coach really fast people, but everyone hates me. Uh, you know, <laughs> at least for me, I know that's not why I chose this vocation. You know, I was talking actually to my college coach, uh, Willie Wood, who's now at Bradley, and uh, at Payne Jordan, and he's he had been at Columbia for 20 years, then recently left Columbia this summer and went to Bradley. You know, after two decades in the same same place, you know, and he's an urban guy. He loves an urban you know environment, like. And, but, you know, it was just time for a change. He moved on. I go, I was like, coach, man, what keeps you going? Like, why are you still doing this? Like, you've achieved everything. I mean, he coached Kyle Merber, you know, 355, 1500-meter guy, NCAA American, like, NCAA record holder in the event. Like, you know, pin relays, multiple pin relay uh, team champions, multiple Ivy League team, individual champ. I mean, just you name it. The guy's coached it. And he says, you know what? To me, it's not about the accolades. To me, it's not about... The PRs is not about the success. It's actually just about watching cultures and helping nurture cultures of young men and women to develop. Because that's why I still do it, really, at the end of the day. Despite all the headaches and paperwork and all this and all that that comes with the job, it was, that's the thing that keeps me going. It's just it's kind of cool to see cultures be created and these imaginations be captured and these young people to support each other. You know, Because th- that support that they get in college is going to be their support network throughout the rest of their life, you know. And he was right. I mean, in my wedding, I had two guys, two of my best friends from college in my wedding, you know, as my groomsmen. Same thing with my wife. I mean, it was, if we didn't go to college and weren't on the team, we probably would have never met those people. And we probably would have never had the relationships and the impact of relationships that we had. Exactly. I think it's keeping it in perspective. It's why do you do this? Both as an athlete and coach, and what, and what does that mean? I think we forget sometimes that... <laughs> That although it seems like a business, it, it actually shouldn't be treated as, treated as one. Um, we could spend hours talking about that. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Especially oh, yeah. in light of some recent re- recent developments in the NCAA. But, you know, uh-huh. I, I think that to tie it back to the topic of failure is I think one of the things, if you step back as a coach, you are teaching young people how to deal and cope with failure in a stressful environment, which is something that they're going to take on for the rest of their life. Like a lot of, uh, a lot of the same tactics I use, right. Um, mm-hmm. in life are things I learned from running. I mean, I was talking to, uh, maybe two weeks ago, be- uh, the best-selling author, David Epstein, who wrote the fabulous book sports team. And oh, he yeah. was, he was telling me the same thing. Like when he went up and gave a, uh, a TED talk that was, you know, he was like, Cameron Diaz is in the first row. You know, it's all these people, it's nervous. It's his biggest talk he's ever given. He's memorized it, he tried to memorize it. He's like, all I did was call back to my days running track and taking that same approach. So it's like everything my coaches taught me before a big race was, was what I fell back on. And I yes. think, you know, that kind of cemented that in, in my head is like these things, although it's just track and I get it, like we spend more hours of the day with these kids than anybody else. And, you know, their friends, their family, their parents, whoever it is, like we're we're around them more than anybody. And it's like those lessons you can teach. And I think that's why, especially with dealing with bad races and how to bounce back and 
and uh, move on to the next one and compartmentalize it and learn from it. Like those are lessons that reach well beyond, you know, um, well beyond track. I mean, I kind of hinted at it earlier, but, you know, my own good failures, for lack of a better term, as a runner, like that was probably one of the best things in my life to happen to me. If I s- sailed along very smoothly, I probably wouldn't, I wouldn't have got interested in coaching or helping people. And even if I did, I would have been a horrible coach because I would have just been like, well, this is the way I've done it. Uh, this is the way I did it. So we're going to do the same thing. Instead, it forced me to step back and realize what was important, what, what, what I was trying to get out of running and coaching and all that good stuff and to really dig into it and see how to do it better. So, and, and you know, tying it all up, I guess, like that's where how you approach failure and uh, how you teach young kids to respond to it is is paramount. Yeah, I mean... You know, shout out to Willie Wood, who coached David Epstein in college. So there you go. <laughs> a, a degree of connection here. Um, this, we could do a, maybe we could do a podcast on the six degrees of Willie Wood. Uh, <laughs> you know, me, <laughs> being a, a coach in Manhattan, I'm sure you know he's has some connection to everyone in the sport. Uh, but yeah, you know, that's the mentor's job, or to me, the coach's job is pretty simple. You know, it's to teach the young people that you work with how to sharpen and refine their skills, and that's where. You know, failure is the greatest teaching tool. Now, my rule of thumb is it's okay to fail as long as you learn from it. But when it comes to habitual, habitual errors, that's when it is a red flag. You know, so you go out once, you do something, you get boxed in. All right, we'll teach you up. Okay, hey, I got boxed in, do this. But if it becomes something that happens on the regular, now we have a little different neuroses that we need to overcome. And even kind of complementing your point, Steve, you know, like the mother or the father like initiates uh, the transition from immaturity to maturity, but eventually someone else has to complete that process. And that's what going away to school and college is. It's the mother or father is then trusting someone else out there, whether it's a professor, whether it's a coach, whether it's a mentor, to complete that process for that young person from immaturity to maturity. So, you know, that's really the charge you take working with young men and women, especially in a scholastic and collegiate setting. Is, like, and I tell this to every athlete and their parents on a recruiting um, call, you know, call, talk, visit, is I'm the person they're going to see the most, the adult they're going to see the most for the next four to five years of their life. You know, they'll, they'll talk to you, they'll engage with you, but they won't be there every day seeing you. They're, that's going to be me. And I, you know, we got to take that with a uh, serious degree of pride and respect and also responsibility if we're going to get better. And you know, getting a little bit more to nuts and bolts, is as we were talking here, I was thinking of the best championship runner in men's middle distance running currently, Leo Manzano. You know, if you look at the number of races, that guy has finished dead last, has just, you know, really just been out of the conversation early at some invita- big invitational. I mean, you name it Prefontaine Classic, some Diamond League over in Europe. I mean, you name it, he, you know, he he doesn't always win every single time. But when it comes to a championship race, Olympic trials, Olympic final, world championship, you know, round or final, man, my money's on Leo because that guy knows how to win when it really, really counts. And it's a different skill set. You're never going to see Leo Manzano break Alan Webb's, you know, American record in the mile. I, you know, it's just, it's tough. You know, the reality of that's very, very uh, unlikely. But is Leo going to win more medals? 
probably that's a pretty high likely. You know, if I was a betting man in Vegas, I'd take those odds on him winning some more medals. So again, you know, you can use that to really help motivate and mature your athletes by saying, well, look, what really matters is what we're trying to do from a um, preparation standpoint. We're just trying to endow you with the skill set to compete at your ultimate championship level. So for some, that's a district meet, conference meet. For some, it's a regional level type meet. Some, it's the national. Some, it's the world stage. But if you're a coach, you need to work back from, okay, one, what's the threshold to qualify them to get the, you know, their toes on the starting line at that championship meet? What does that look like? Two, what do they have to be equipped with from a skill set, skill acquisition standpoint to be able to do anything? If someone's going to go out hard from the gun, what are they going to do? If someone's going to, you know, just going to fart around at 75 second pace for 1500 and, you know, for guys and then just see who has the best last 300 and see who can run 35 last 300, okay, are they going to be equipped to handle that? You know, what, what are you going to do? Or when you get to that championship and you look at the start list and you, or you do your job as a coach and you research the athlete, their PRs, their progression, what they're good at, what's your tactic? You know, 10K, you know, what do you do for a 10K? Do you just say, man, we're going to go Jerry Schumacher and Shalane Flying and Sal. We're just going to go hard from the gun and say, hey, do your best to keep up. Or is it really hot and humid and really awful conditions and you're going to, you know, go out and really chill for the first three miles or, you know, 8K? And then try to make it honest, or just just wait and try to do the uh, you know Lance Armstrong type uh, uh, tactic, which is just make other people beat you. You know when he was you know at the pinnacle of his sport, i.e., but unfortunately dope to the gills. I mean that's what he did. He essentially was like, well, anyone in the Tour de France, just come and try to beat me. Do whatever you can and try to beat me. And you know it was just it was kind of a, a fun game to watch at the time. You know, albeit in hindsight. A dirty game to watch. So that's the fun part. This is the fun part of coaching right now is to try to figure out how to get the most out of your kid at a championship. And I'd remind my athletes too, we're coming up on championship season, like, oh coach, man, I'm sitting, you know, sixteenth on the you know, the depth chart, you know, but I'm like, well, you've automatically qualified. So you're in. Like just because you got sixteenth on a time trial mark doesn't necessarily seem mean you're the sixteenth best athlete at a championship meet in the conference. You might be the fifth best athlete at this championship meet, at this conference meet, because those guys that you're competing against, 10 of them might just be able to run time trials in perfect weather. And guess what? Rarely is a championship meet in perfect weather. Rarely. So it's taking all those things into consideration and applying them to what you're going to, you know, what tactics you're going to use, and also how you're going to coach that athlete up throughout the course of the year, knowing that all right, the championship's going to be here, typically the weather's like this, or typically my conference or my league, you know, this school has good middle-distance people, this school has good long-distance people, all right, how are we going to be able to nurture and develop and mentor this young man or woman and sharpen their skill set to get it so that, all right, they can achieve something significant for them? Because remember, life, you know, on the final analysis, every moment's an important moment in life. You know, we, we kind of sometimes forget that. I mean, everything you do really has a, a, na- uh, a net loss or a net gain. But how do you get them to walk away feeling like that season was a success? So it's, it's also being realistic, too, saying, hey, man, you know, A-plus would be if you got top five in the conference meet. Like, that would be awesome. Top five, score some points. And then anything better than that is like cake. But don't go in and tell, you know, 
an athlete who's a minute back in the 10K, you know, unless you know something that other people don't like, you know, or they have crazy wild better fitness like Edward Cheserek or something than everyone else because they just jogged a, a preliminary 10K mark, that they're going to go and they're going to go win the 10K meet, you know, if they don't have the fitness to do that. So be realistic as a coach, but make sure you set up a challenging goal, you know, that's result, that has a result in mind, but was more process oriented. But something that if they really hone and get excited about, they can achieve so they can remember, man, I remember that time I got, you know, all conference, you know, top four, top five or whatever. That was awesome. And they may never be on the, you know, get the gold medal around their neck. But I, I know from my perspective being, you know, not really a highly talented athlete, but getting the most I could out of myself in college, that, that to me is always was a big point of pride. Like with the, the few number of all region or all conference certificates I got in cross country or track, you know, those things are near and dear to my heart because, man, it took the world to have a guy like myself who wasn't nearly as talented as Steve over here coming out of high school <laughs> to work my butt off to get the, to make that happen. And my coaches and I celebrated that, you know, very thoroughly when it happened. And, you know, the flip side too, it only became, it only came because my freshman, sophomore year, man, I was, I just failed miserably at those meets. I was really f- afraid. I was over my head. I was like, oh, I was just a freshman, sophomore, wide-eyed. Then my junior, senior years, I was like, okay, I'm going to get this done. This, all right, I'm ready. Let's do this. So, again, yep. uh, just trying to summarize it all, make sure that you give the athlete those role models about who has done who's a really good championship style runner because it's ultimately what we're trying to endow people with because the championship of life is every day they're going to live beyond college it's the decisions they're going to make uh you know of who to marry of how to raise their children of where to live and that's like steve was saying you know with david epstein or himself is really where the lessons of sport come into play is will that athlete still hear your voice 10 years down the road 20 years down the road to motivate them to be a productive agent of change in their community. Yeah. I you know, I think that's a, a great lesson. I'm gonna end with a quick story that I think demonstrates that a little bit because uh I think two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, we had a um well relatively home meet at Rice where we drive, you know, ten minutes across the city and and compete and we had a bunch of guys in the fifteen hundred. And uh what it was funny about that is we had one guy run 344 for 1500, which was big PR for him, just missed the school record. And we had another kid who ran 401 for 1500. And everybody, in terms of surprise and, and, and almost reaction, even from the 344 kid, uh, the 401 was just, that kid got, you know, blown up. And the reason was exactly like you. He came in as a 445 high school miler. He only made the team because it was my first year and I had no idea who he was. And he was there on the first day. And I was like, okay, I guess this is my team. His freshman year, if if you go and look up his Tifers account, it's actually kind of hilarious. Um, Because he worked his butt off, got sick a whole bunch, and he had a 39-minute 10K. Yes, 39 minutes. 1744 5k Woo. and just some a four a couple 427 426 1500s okay and just horrible stuff just failed left and right some for some reason somehow he stuck on the team probably because he was a cool kid it's a good kid and then as i said two years later as a junior now he's running 401 
And yeah, that's not, you know, that's not national level. That's not stud level or anything that barely squeaks them into our conference, but it squeaks them in. Right. But for that kid to come through all that failure and to improve so much is huge. And it's huge for the team too, because it's another story now, because now walk-ons coming in, we have a couple walk-ons that have done stuff like that. Another kid who came in as a 443 miler and now has run 913 for steeple and was all conference and cross. But when you get those stories like that, now you have these guys you can point to for those, you know, 425 kids who we now bring in as walk-ons who say, oh my God, like, look how far this kid came. Like, I can endure this and might go through some rough spots, but if I keep my head down and keep going, like, I can see this too. And I think that lesson is completely invaluable. Yes, without a doubt. I mean, I have a very similar freshman, basically with the exact same PRs, you know, type guy. And I told him when, I, when he said, hey, coach, you really want to be on the team? You know, great guy, lights out smart, just awesome person. Like, man, this is D1. This is going to be tough. This is going to be hard. Like, just, you know, it's it's way over your head because we knew his PRs coming in weren't that good. But, you know, I took him for the exact same, you know, reasons because he's a cultural guy. And, you know, when that guy breaks four minutes for the 15, which will happen one day when he breaks 16 minutes for the 5K, I mean, it will be a, a huge success. And just one of those cultural things for not only uh, me as a coach, but also the program and the young men on the team to look and point towards and say, hey, this is what success is. It reminds me kind of of the, uh, you know, final lines of Middlemarch uh, from George Eliot's famous novel. It's like, you know, it's something like, uh, to the effect of like the growing good in the world is probably dependent on, you know, the unhistoric acts and things not so wrong with you or I that might have been or, or might have been not so wrong with you or I had it not been for the, you know, number of people who live faithfully a hidden life that rest in unvisited tombs, which essentially says it's the good of the world it depends on a lot of people like that. No one who ever gets the limelight or fame or spotlight, but the people who are just awesome human beings and these teachers, these you know, um, coaches, these um, agents of change that never made the headlines. And I think really, you know, that's what this profession is about. And those types of people, those types of coaches, are the ones who make this vocation something to aspire to and make it worth all the, you know, the, the, the low pay, the long hours, the turmoil, the heartache, because somewhere along the lines like Steve had and I had a coach exactly like that. And that's what just made me want to say, man, if I had to choose anything to do with my life, it would be coaching, you know, and I'm a life, I'm a lifer, as they say. I mean, I'll coach middle school, high school, college, master's runners, doesn't matter because at the end of the day, it's still you're working in the economy of people. And that exchange is far more valuable than the exchange you get from treating it like a business where you're just about trying to get these bonuses or this high-paying job or with all these facilities. Um, I mean, I'm reading also right now Beautiful Constraint. And, you know, that book talks about how constraints actually make us who we are or make what we you know evolve or the innovations that we've come to know possible because if you just had everything and you just had it all and you just walk through life unscathed and walk between the raindrops you really wouldn't be forced to innovate and create something new but constraints failures they force us to do that so 
again, it's the most valuable learning opportunity, learning moment in any um, you know student, any athlete's career is that moment of failure. And it really, that's when the good coaches coach, you know, and that's when maybe the not so good coaches scream and yell and get mad and chew people out is because, you know, they're so obsessed about the result, but that's, that's the time when it's like, you know, you got to hold, hold the egg that's been cracked a little. So it doesn't completely, the yolk doesn't completely fall out of it because you're, you're here to repair. And then you, you know, repatch that cracking the egg up a little bit and then it's stronger than ever. Yep, exactly. Well, we're we're coming on uh, fifty minutes, so I think that's a uh, that's a perfect place to uh, to end it. That's a nice summary of of uh, what we're trying to do as coaches, and I couldn't agree more. It's it's definitely a people business and not a uh, <laughs> not a try and uh, you know okay get all these accolades and say you coach the fastest people and get all these. Uh, scholarships and all that stuff if you're in it for that reason then well i kind of feel sorry for you um but but that's kind of the summary and uh <laughs> thanks a lot john really enjoyed it yeah thanks dave appreciate it and thanks everyone for your your tweets and your emails and comments about stuff to take on uh you know as you can kind of tell we start with one topic and we go kind of around and around and we touch on a bunch of different things so hopefully we touched on a couple of things people had reached out to us to speak to uh you know one of these days we might just do a recipe workshop where it's like nuts and bolts i know people want to do that but probably something for the summer yeah, uh, yeah. summer months here maybe so, when we're together at one of these meets and can actually yeah. sit down in person and just uh, knock some things out oh dude yeah for sure all right well thanks again everybody appreciate it yeah thanks a lot everybody